1: Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, the field coordinator with LAP. I'm excited to share my conversation with Tom, one of our stellar LAP volunteers. We will be talking about his article, Humility and the Recovering Lawyer. You should check it out after the podcast. It will be found in today's show notes. And now we'll jump right into the conversation. Tom, thanks so much for being here with us today.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: I love the article, and I really liked that you used humility right out there in the title and throughout the article. It really seems like one of those words that is often defined and even more often misunderstood. So before you got into recovery, what was your conception of humility?
0: Probably humiliation or not knowing things and not being proud of not knowing things. Probably it didn't have a positive connotation to it. Of course, I was young when I got sober, so I don't necessarily know if I thought about it that much, but I was certainly arrogant prior to hitting my bottom.
1: A two-part question. How old were you when you got sober, and what did humility mean to you after getting into recovery?
0: I was 18 when I got sober. I was a freshman in college at Central Michigan at the time. And I've been sober ever since. So almost my entire adult life I've spent in sobriety and working on staying sober.
1: That's incredible. Well, let me follow up on the first part. What led you to getting sober at 18 as a freshman in college, when most people are coming into their own and drinking?
0: I had come into my own in high school with drinking. So I was well experienced by the time I hit college. And I had had some issues in high school with drinking. gotten into some trouble and contemplated sobriety. Just it never took it that seriously. Always found a reason why it didn't really apply to me. But when I got to college, there was an unlimited supply of alcohol. It escalated quickly. My first semester, I got through. But by the end of January of my second semester, I was in a lot of trouble as a direct result of my drinking. It was a three-prong issue. Number one, I had stopped showing up for classes, and I had gotten caught showing up drunk to a few classes. Number two, I had gotten into trouble for showing up drunk to work. They had confronted me and accused me of showing up drunk to work and I was about to get fired. And the thing that really drove it was I had acted horribly in the residence hall when I was drunk and they were looking at punishing me and possibly removing me from the residence. I was looking at academic issues, work issues, and living issues all at once. I had to make a decision about what to do There was university, their support, and there was a recovery program, 12-step program available to me, and I got sober. I was really hurting. I was scared, and I was afraid that my family would find out what was happening. I was ashamed at who I had become, and I was shocked that I tried to stop on my own through this period, and I could not do it. I was deeply scared you know out on my own for the first time if you want to call college out on your own I really didn't think I had any other options other than to get sober and to keep my nose clean that was it I went to meetings did my schoolwork, and eventually I got out of some of the trouble that I was in and chose not to get back into trouble by drinking or or doing drugs again after that I did have prior to this, a certain arrogance. I love to debate with people. I love to argue. And it wasn't done in the greatest of spirit. It was done in the thought process that I was right, that I knew things that other people didn't know, that I was in control of things that I was not in fact in control of. So there was a a certain righteousness about me.
1: That... Fear that you're talking about as you're walking into the rooms, as you're starting that recovery process, how did that change your definition of humility?
0: When I hit my bottom, I went to strangers who I didn't know, who I didn't know anything about them other than the fact that they were sober and I wasn't. And they started telling me to do things like come back like not drink, to have hope, ask God for help. And for some reason, maybe for the first time in my life at that point, I didn't argue. I didn't debate. I didn't try to prove why I was right and and they were wrong. For some reason, I just listened to them, probably because, like I said earlier, I was really scared.
1: Fear is a powerful motivator. So you got sober very early on in college. How did your recovery look through college when other people are going out, really partying hard?
0: At first, it was very lonely. I was in a college town, but there wasn't a lot of college students in recovery. Got sober at the very end of January, the beginning of February of 1990. Those first four months... It was kind of isolating. More and more people who were younger started to come into recovery. The university started to use me to work with other students who were struggling. My participation in that led to a little bit more socializing with other people who are in recovery. I started to become an active member of not just the university, but the community. So recovery became a part of my Life. And an interesting thing happened when I was 30 years old. I got transferred from Michigan down to North Carolina. And by that time, I had maybe 10 years of sobriety. One of the things that came out of my mother's mouth was she was deeply concerned about me moving from Michigan to North Carolina because she thought one of the things I might do was drink. I was no longer associated with the people who knew me in recovery. I always admired her for that, because a lot of people think that when you get sober, you go through like a treatment center for 30 days, you spin dry, and then you're fine after that. But she had the wisdom to know that you can have over 10 years of sobriety and still be one drink away from going back to being a drunk. One of the first things I had to do was to find an active support group of recovery
1: It's amazing that your mother had that foresight moving in recovery is a big thing because meetings are different everywhere. You know, they, they don't do it right. Take breaks when they shouldn't. And I've met a lot of people with very long-term sobriety that have really struggled with moving. So that is incredible that you were able to plug back in and create that network. That seems like a common theme in your recovery life.
0: And it still relates to humility because one of the things I find is where you got sober is the way you think it should be come to a different area. And it could be even within the same state, you know, they have different ways of doing things. Steps are the same. The traditions are the same, but the formats can be different, but different doesn't mean wrong. And people get sober in many different formats in recovery. Just one quick story in Michigan, where I got sober, they have smaller tables And you can manipulate it so that you can go to 40-minute meetings instead of one-hour meetings if you pick the right table. Because they go around the table and they finish, and if they finish within 40 minutes, they're done. So I had gotten used to that. When I got down to North Carolina, one of the things I learned is they stick to the one hour. Even if nobody's speaking, you will sometimes sit there in silence (laughs) until you hit one hour. Somebody used to a 40-minute meeting, that was hard to adjust at first. At first, I'm thinking, well, I don't like this, until one day I was at a meeting, and somebody said, I'm so grateful that we keep these meetings to an hour, because the ABC liquor store closes at 9 p.m., and I know that with this meeting starting at 8, I won't leave here until that ABC liquor store is closed. That gives me assurance that I'm going to make it one more day. And that hit me, that there's a reason why it works.
1: That speaks beautifully to the power of humility. Can you tell us about being on this road to nowhere?
0: I'm not somebody who went straight from undergrad to law school. In fact, I went to law school, I entered it when I was 35 years old, which at the time seemed really old. Now that I'm 50, it doesn't seem quite as old. I had gone through a number of jobs. I managed a restaurant. I worked at a bank. I worked for an auto manufacturing company uh, that made machines, and they were the ones who sent me down here. They sent me down here to open a plant in 2001, one week before the 9-11 attacks. When 9-11 occurred, everything kind of froze. They decided not to go forward with it, but they wished me the best. Uh, (laughs) So I was down here in North Carolina, and my background was in auto industry, and There didn't seem to be as much auto industry down here as I thought. It was tough, you know. So I ended up with a job at a boat marina, financing and insuring boats, and it was supposed to be temporary. I was married at the time. I did that job for about four, five years. And my wife one day looked at me and she said, remember, you told me this was a temporary job. She said, well, what have you always wanted to do? Because I'd be getting all these licenses. I got an insurance license. I got a notary license. I got all these various licenses. But they didn't seem to be getting me anywhere. I said, well, it sounds silly. But when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I pictured myself being like Sam Waterson on Law & Order. He had such confidence. She said, well, if that's what you really want to do, stop with all of this Side stuff, and just do it. So that's what I did. I applied for law school. I worked during the day selling insurance. The night, I went to law school. Every free moment, I spent studying.
1: You had a revelation in your first legal writing class. Can you tell us about that revelation?
0: The night class had what I call the wall of paralegals. They sat up in the front. And they were all paralegals during the day and law students at night. It was scary. They seemed to know things already that I didn't know. They knew about writing briefs, about writing various things. They knew about citations. They knew about the law. And I knew nothing about the law. I knew nothing about citations. I never heard of the Blue Book. The first class that we had was legal writing. And this seemed to be right up their alley because this is what they did. One of the things that happened was because I didn't know anything about blue book citations, because I didn't know anything about proper legal writing, the professor was up there telling us this is the way to do it. I listened. Part of that humility, I knew what I didn't know. I didn't know how to do citations properly. I didn't know how to write in the active voice properly. All the things you're not supposed to do in legal writing. So when they tell me not to do it, I heard and I listened. One of the things that happened was the paralegals who had all been in practice learned certain industry shortcuts. They learned how it's probably done in the actual arena, but not how the law professor wanted it done. While they did it to maybe the way they've learned it in the industry, I did it the way the professor wanted it done. And I ended up with the the top grade in the class.
1: That reminds me of that Socrates quote where he says, badly paraphrasing, I'm the smartest man in the world because I know one thing and I don't know anything.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And you remain so teachable. Professors really don't like to hear that you already know how to do it better. <laughs> yep, absolutely. After graduating law school, new in the field, how did that relate at all to being new in recovery?
0: First of all, the fear is there Jan. There's nothing scarier than actually applying some of these laws and people actually counting on you. One of the first things I learned is there's a weird irony. When you first graduate from law school and you pass the bar, you know more about all laws than you'll ever know in your entire life, but you don't know a whole lot about anything that you're actually doing. And that's where I was. So the fear was there and the realization that there was so much still that I had to learn. I ended up in a weird area of law that was emerging called information governance and records management, outgrowth of Sarbanes-Oxley and e-discovery issues that had come up in the 2000s. So I ended up in this area called records management. I had a law degree. I thought I was pretty important because I have a law degree. One of the things that they said was, yeah, we're really impressed with your law degree. We're glad you have it. Really, what we need is for you to get something called the certified records manager certification, which was a six-part exam. I was frustrated. I had just passed the bar exam. And now you want me to take six more exams. But I did it. Now, I will say this, I did not pass all those exams the first time. In fact, part five, I think I had to take three times before I finally passed it. There was some humility right there. But I did it. And I realized how much I got out that I knew a lot more about my industry that I was in as a result of that. I had to learn about things that otherwise I did not want to learn about like technology in indexing records, in library science, uh, things that I never thought would be applicable to me, but they are applicable to me. They said, well, that's very impressive. What we really need from you is from you to publish some articles Well, I was frustrated. I mean, I had just gotten a law degree and and the certification, but I went through that and through the process of writing, I learned a great deal more. There was so much more that I still had to learn. Later on in about 2018, Europe implemented these data privacy laws called GDPR. Records management went from records management to information governance to data privacy issues. So I couldn't rely on what I learned just four or five years prior. I'm still having to learn. I thought part of the thing about having a nice law degree was that you proved yourself. And it turns out that's not the case. You still have to continue to learn. At one point, my boss said, we're really glad that you have a law degree and a certified records management certification, and you've published. But what we really need is for you to become a certified information privacy professional. So in 2020, I went out and got that certification.
1: I love the way you describe that. The framework means everything. And some people could describe that same situation and say, you know, I had to get this other thing and I had to get this other thing. Turned it into this joyful process.
0: There was so much that I got out of that and so much that I learned from that. I don't think it's going to surprise you to know that there's still more areas that I have to learn about. One of the things that recovery has taught me is, I don't stop going to meetings and working on my recovery because I know that I don't have it all yet, that, that I'm still one drink away, that there's still so much for me to do. Applying that to being a lawyer, it helps to note that as a lawyer, there's still so much I have to learn. There's so much that I have to listen to. It's that humility. It's that continually being teachable, Continually being open to new ideas and thoughts. And if I do it right, to listen more than I talk.
1: Recovery does, it gives you that incredible framework.
0: Absolutely.
1: Why do you think it's hard for lawyers who might have been top of their class and very successful in other pursuits, start practicing law? And as they get that blast of humility. Yeah.
0: The best comparison I can have is athletes. When they go from any level going to that next level, they were the star athlete in high school or college, and then they go to the NFL or the major leagues, and they're surrounded by people who were all stars. That shell shock of being surrounded by people who are just as motivated as you are. A client recently that asked me some questions. They had sent it to me in an email, and it was a little intimidating because questions where I felt like I should know the answers to, but I didn't. I contacted them, and we had a meeting. What I told them was, I thought your questions were so good that they merited a discussion and not a response. I think that's ultimately sometimes what our clients want when, especially in areas that maybe we don't have full knowledge of the information that we need to give them the answers or the solutions. They want a discussion. That's balsam humility.
1: That definitely does. There can often be this perception in the legal field, not only that we should have it all together, but we should just know things all love that way that you frame it as a discussion, figuring out more about what your clients want. That's a gift of humility. How did you get involved with the North Carolina Lawyers Assistance Program?
0: I had a considerable amount of years by the time I became a lawyer, but I will say that throughout law school, while staying sober, meetings were not a priority for me. I'm not saying I didn't go to any meetings, but I will say that recovery was a real focal point of my life prior to that. It was uh, a de minimis part of my life at that time. Was, I went to a recovery meeting, and there was another lawyer there. He had told me about this group, Lawyer's Assistance Program. At the time, it was called PALS. And I remember I got invited to it and and to go to a lunch there. I remember how great it felt to be surrounded by other attorneys who were in recovery. So many of them had similar stories to me. and I thought I was very unique to be surrounded by people, many of whom got sober young, many of whom went to, to law school later in life like I did. I was just shocked. how many similarities we had and there were even cases where people I went to school with were also in recovery and we didn't know and I remember we had a discussion that if we had only known we could have provided each other with more support in law school because law school was so terribly difficult. I'm so grateful that I stayed sober through there but if I had to do it over again I would have reached out to get that support through law school. It's been such a blessing reinvigorated my recovery program. It made it so that recovery stayed a priority.
1: Glad that you said that about coming into the LAP program. It is a huge asset to be able to come in from law school if you can. They're all drinking from a fire hose. There's so many other law students and lawyers who going through the same things. I'm so glad that you were able to receive that support when you got to LAP. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today. Well,
0: thank you for having me. And thank you to the Lawyer's Assistance Program for all they do and for all they've done for me to help keep me so Thank you for joining us at The Sidebar. If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company.